Now think about someone that you admire greatly. The kids and students, if you're watching, try to do this as well. Think about how much you would respect them and their opinion. Now, look around. What does your home look like at this moment? For kids, what does your room or your bathroom look like? How about what you are currently wearing? Did you put away your dishes after breakfast? Are your clothes flung all over your room on the floor? You have that in your mind, okay. Now picture that person that you admire at your doorstep waiting for you to let them into your home. They are literally about to ring the doorbell. Would you be ready to give them a tour of your home right now or to show them your room? For some, you are like Jan Fuller. You are good to go. Your home is always put in order, immaculately clean, and you are completely and utterly relaxed right now. For others, like my kids, you're mortified, and you would be panicking. All you could think about is how embarrassed you would be for this person to see your home in its current state. Your heart might be beating slightly as you try to remember if your underwear or pants for my British friends are sprawled all around your room. And maybe you're wondering, how quickly could I get dressed and put on makeup? Or how long could I stall before I opened that door? The ultimate question is, would you be ready for a scenario like this? Now, what's funny is this illustration took on a whole new meaning for me this morning. And I'm even tempted right now to glance over at my kitchen table to see if I put away my breakfast. Okay, so I think I've effectively distracted you all, and I've preoccupied your thoughts with the cleanliness of your home. So with that in mind, we're going to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 12, 35 through 48. Now, I promise that my intention is not to give ammunition to those who want to condemn their family for not cleaning up their house more often. I know some of you are tempted to look at your spouse or your kids and say right now, see, I told you cleanliness was next to godliness. Listen up to Pastor Ben this morning. Now, this passage is not about cleaning up your house. But what it does focus on is this idea of being ready in a moment's notice. The passage before us today is an important passage for us to think about. And I think the best way to handle this passage is to look at it in two sections. The first is in verses 35 through 40, where Jesus gives clear and challenging commands, along with illustrations, reasons for them, and promises to those who heed them. The second is in verses 41 through 48, where Jesus addresses Peter's question in response to his teaching. So what I want to do is work through each section together, starting with Luke 12, 35 through 40. Let's read the passage together where Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The commands of this passage are clear, and they almost leap off the page because of the illustrative repetitions that Jesus gives. We see them in verses 35, 36, and 40. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. And then down in verse 40, be ready. Now before we think about these commands, I want to start with the reason Jesus gives for them and the rewards he promises. You see, the beauty of the Bible is how God doesn't just lay out commands for us without providing reasons for them and promises in light of them. And so it can often be helpful to meditate on those before thinking through the commands and their application. So let's start with the reason that Jesus gives for these commands, which is the certainty of Christ's return. We see this idea repeated in verses 36, 37, and 40. In verse 36, the servant is to be ready to open the door for his master when he comes. In verse 37, we see that the blessed servant is the one who is awake when he comes and that the master will come. And in verse 40, we read that the Son of Man is coming. You see, this is all pointing to a certainty of Christ's return. And as we consider the use of the title Son of Man, we're reminded of precisely who is coming. You see, this is rightly understood as a reference to the vision of Daniel in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which speaks of one like the Son of Man being presented before God and given an everlasting dominion to rule over all nations. So in other words, we can be certain that there is a day coming when the king of kings will return to rule over all of the nations. But what's interesting is there's an additional layer of certainty here. And that is the certainty that he will return when he is not expected. Did you notice the repetition of this idea? In verse 36, it's likened to a master of the estate returning from a wedding feast. Ancient wedding celebrations were not like ours today. You did not receive a save the date with a specific time the wedding would be held, like Saturday at 1 p.m. And there was no expected length of the wedding. In fact, weddings could last up to seven days or even more. Now, for the husbands watching, can you imagine a wedding lasting for seven days and the pressure that would be on that event? So the idea, though, is that when a master went away to a wedding, the servants had no idea when he would return. We see the certainty of an unknown return repeated in verse 38 when Jesus mentions that the master could return in the second watch or in the third. The watches here signify a time frame of roughly around 9, 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. And the idea is that the master would return at an indecipherable point of time for the servant. This uncertainty is magnified a third time when Jesus switches the metaphor in verse 39 to a thief breaking into the house when the master would not expect it. 
And all of this culminates in verse 40. And the truth that is there that the Son of Man, hear this church, is coming at an hour you do not expect. So while we are certain of Christ's return, we are to be equally certain that he will return at an unexpected time. I just let that sink in for a moment. Many of you, I imagine, have heard prophecies or teaching regarding the return of Christ that mention precise details of what will take place right before Christ returns. And I'm not going to go into the different opinions on the subject, but I'm personally not persuaded the details are as clear as some claim for them to be. And one of the reasons is this passage here. You see, the truth this is driving home, church, is don't think that you can watch the stars or the signs of the time in such a way that you can wait to be prepared for the coming of Christ. The Son of Man is coming. And the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Now notice also the marvelous promises of blessing for the one who heeds these commands, which is the blessing of everlasting rest. Look again at verses 37 through 38. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Oh, beloved, this is so marvelous to think about. In response to this, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, I never read this verse without wondering at the marvelous condescension of our Lord. Even in the day of his appearing, his thoughts will be more about his people than himself. Do you see what this is saying? What this is promising to us? When Christ returns, our striving will cease. We will enter his rest. And the amazing reality is he says that he will then serve us. Just imagine that. Just imagine what that would be like. And then recognize that this is God who is coming and will serve us. It is truly astounding that this would be the promise given if we heed the commands of Christ. So with the reason in mind and the promise in mind, let's examine the commands together, which I would sum up as the call to remain awake and ready. Notice in verses 37 through 38 that Jesus twice calls this servant the one whom the master finds awake. And when we consider that a master would be going away for an undisclosed period of time and possibly returning late in the evening, we can see the temptation that a servant would have to not remain awake. And this really draws attention to the first three commands in verses 35 through 36. First, we see the command to stay dressed for action, which is literally to gird up your loins. 
Everyone in the ancient world would wear a long robe that had a couple of holes for arms and a hole for the head. Now, for all my military friends out there, you can imagine this is a very inconvenient attire for going into action, as it would limit the movement of your legs. Imagine trying to run around while wearing a kandora or an abaya. So to dress for action, what they would do is take a sash or a belt of some kind, tie it around their waist, they would pull all the loose material together, and they would often pull up the corners of their robe in order to shorten them and be prepared to go into battle. You can imagine this would take time and deliberate preparation. The second command we see would likewise take the same amount of effort. Jesus says, keep your lamps burning. To keep your lamps burning means you have ample fuel ready. And you're keeping them constantly lit so that you wouldn't be stumbling in the dark. The third command is like the first two, where the servant is ready to open the door to his master at once when he comes and knocks. So what Jesus is saying is you are to be dressed to spring into action at a moment's notice. You are to have ample light to see and not be caught in the dark. And you are standing at the door ready to open it when Jesus knocks. The idea, church, is that you are anticipating his return in such a way that you are doing everything necessary to be ready for him. And this is the call of Jesus in this section of the passage. To be awake and ready for the certainty of his return at a moment when you would not expect it. So before we move on, let me ask you, are you ready in this way for Christ's return right now? And with that in mind, let's examine then the next section of our passage, which begins in verse 41. We read, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? I pause right there. Peter is basically asking, are we in danger of not being ready? Or is this for all the other people? You can see how honest this question really is. Now what's important to recognize is that this has basically been a running dialogue since verse 1 in chapter 12, where it speaks of a great crowd following Jesus, but how Jesus was speaking to the disciples first. Verse 22 then repeats the same idea where it says, and he said to his disciples. So I don't think Peter is separating the apostles from the rest of the disciples, but he's referring to the disciples following Jesus and the crowds that were gathering around him. So pick back up in verses 42 through 48 and pay attention to how Jesus answers his question. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant 
will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. The question again is, who is in danger of not being ready? Us, the disciples, or just the crowds that are gathering around you? But you notice that Jesus doesn't answer Peter directly, and this is very telling. He answers him with a question and another parable. And I would suggest that anytime Jesus answers a question with a question, we should immediately realize that Jesus is making an important distinction about the question itself. Now let me give you some quick points about the parable before we look closely at Jesus' answer. First, we can see it's directly related to the previous teaching of Jesus because Peter's question is in response of that. We also see the ideas repeated of the master leaving and returning at an unexpected time, along with a blessing for the servant who is ready and the temptation to not be ready. Now, some suggest that the change of Jesus to speaking about a manager shows that this is now about the apostles and specifically church leaders. But the connection to the previous teaching I think shows that Jesus has not changed the character of the servant who is ready. And because of this and some other things that we'll see in a moment, I'm convinced Jesus is speaking about all disciples. Yet he's making it clear that no disciple is exempt through the way he responds, even Peter. And I think we see this as we examine the contrasts of the types of responses from a servant and the rewards or punishments Jesus presents. Look at these with me. First, what we see is the reward of a faithful servant. Notice how Jesus describes the response of the first servant. In verse 42, he calls that servant faithful and wise, one whom the master finds doing what he was told to do. Here, it is giving other servants their portion of food at the proper time. Now, I agree with several commentators who say that we need to make sure that we see this as an illustration by Jesus. And therefore, we need to be careful not to read too much into the example of this servant being over the household. And I think we're helped to do this when we consider that the ready servant in the previous teaching was simply the doorkeeper. Typically, one set over the whole household would not also be the same servant opening the door. So I'm convinced Jesus is giving an illustration of responsibility the master gives to any of his servants. This one speaks of leadership simply to ensure Peter doesn't see himself as being exempt. But we could insert any kind of responsibility a master would give to any of his servants. So what Jesus is ultimately saying is that the faithful and wise manager is the servant found being a good steward of what he has been given to do. Now we'll see this even more when we see the contrast of the servant who is unfaithful. But before we do, notice again the promise 
that Jesus gives. And notice how it is expanded in verses 43 and 44. He says that the faithful servant is blessed, which is the truest form of happiness. Yet he is not only able to rest, but he's set over all the master's possessions. Both teachings of blessings give a clear picture of the eternal kingdom of Christ. Oh, beloved, again, don't breeze past the blessings of obedience to Jesus Christ too quickly and miss their motivating value. Soak them in for a moment. Think about what this would really mean. Words to describe this wouldn't even come close to relaying its glory. This is going to be a magnificent day for those who are obedient to Christ. I think we could stop here and we could get the gist of this passage, but Jesus also wants us to feel the weight of his commands. And when we examine the contrasts that he gives of the unfaithful servants, what we find is the consequence of unfaithful servants. Pay attention to the language used to describe the response and consequence of the servant who is not found to be faithful and wise. First, consider what he thinks to himself in verse 45. My master is delayed in coming. This is one of the greatest temptations for all who hear the words of Christ. After all, it has been over 2,000 years since this was spoken. But know this, church, this was a temptation they faced only shortly after hearing this, which Paul addressed in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Peter again in 2 Peter 3. You see, the temptation is to think there's ample time to respond to Jesus and to get our affairs in order. What I want to encourage you is to recognize today that there is absolutely no security in that thought That is the biggest lie of the devil. Jesus Christ says he could return in the next hour, the next day, the next week or month or year. Don't build your life on this lie, for it has devastating consequences that we will see. Notice also what this servant does as he believes this lie. He begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. In other words, he doesn't care about others. He has no fear of the master and he lives only for his own pleasure and comforts. Now, pay attention and think on the consequence that Jesus gives for this servant in verse 46. The master of that servant, he says, will come on a day when that servant does not expect him and in an hour that he doesn't know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now I want to encourage you, fight the temptation going on in your heart to glaze over these words and to smooth them out to your liking. Spurgeon again provides a helpful comment. He says this, This is a truly terrible expression. We are sometimes charged with using two strong expressions with regard to the wrath to come. 
It is quite impossible that we should do so, even if we tried. For the expressions of the Lord Jesus are more profoundly terrible than any which even medieval writers have ever been known to invent. Church, cutting into pieces is meant to be imagined literally. It is a horrible punishment, and I won't begin to describe it because kids may be watching. And putting him with the unfaithful should be seen as being placed with unbelievers. Matthew adds in Matthew 24, 51, that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, showing that this is a clear reference to eternal torment and hell. This cannot be a believing leader who simply misused his position. This is the consequence for those that reject Jesus Christ. And we need to see it in its reality because it's a consequence to those who are unfaithful to his will. Now look also at verses 47 through 48, which indicate two other possible responses to the will of the master that have serious consequences as well. Verse 47 speaks of a severe beating or a scourging for the one who knew the master's will but didn't do it. Verse 48 speaks of a lighter beating for the servant who is ignorant of the master's will, but a beating nonetheless. All three responses of unfaithfulness receive consequences of varying severity. And this is not the first time Jesus has spoken like this. If you remember back in Luke 10, verses 10 through 16, Jesus spoke of differing degrees of punishment and judgment for those that reject the disciples' message. Now, some suggest that these might be referring to judgment that will come upon believers, but I don't think that is the case. And I say this because of the contrast that are presented of someone who is faithful the, the Greek word there is for believing, or someone who is unfaithful, which is not believing. And the fact that, while we do see that believers will be judged based upon their actions in Scripture, the Scriptures speak of that judgment as a loss of reward, and not a punishment. And beloved, we don't want to give any idea that the cross of Jesus Christ was not sufficient enough to satisfy any need to punish our sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So I'm convinced that Jesus is showing, and get this, that there are really only two ultimate types of people. There are believers who are prepared for his return, ones that he finds faithful to his will, and there are unbelievers who are not prepared by doing the opposite of his will disregarding his will, and even being ignorant of it. And the end of verse 48 then drives home the distinction that I think Jesus wants to make in answering Peter's question. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You see, church, everyone, he's saying to Peter, everyone is responsible for being ready for the return of the Son of Man. Those like Peter, 
who have been given ample opportunities to respond to the will of Christ will be held accountable for those opportunities. Those who haven't received as many opportunities will still be judged according to how they have responded to the will of Christ. As you've seen, this passage has a lot to it. I think the response that we should make to it is really quite simple. Consider how you are responding to Christ. Everyone watching this live stream has now heard the truth that the Son of Man is returning and that all will be held accountable for how they have responded to his teaching at his return. But the most amazing reality of the gospel is that the Son of Man came 2,000 years ago to make a way for people to be prepared. Jesus said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom, to pay the debt owed for our sin, to bear our sins upon himself on the cross, to receive the judgment, punishment, and wrath of God against them. But not only that, he came to give life and the power we need to be prepared for his return. You see, he doesn't just command for you to be awake and ready. He doesn't just give you the reason of his return being certain and at an unknown hour, but he provided his life as a ransom for all who would place their trust in him. And he provides his spirit and the grace we all need to stay awake and be ready. And then, oh then, beloved, he has promised to bring us into eternal rest, to recline at his table while he serves us and places us over all his possessions. So how should we respond to these truths? Let me offer three ways for you. First, build your life upon the certainty of Christ's return. Know right now that Jesus is coming. And if you haven't placed your trust in him for salvation and reconciliation with God, do so now, knowing that you are not guaranteed another hour or another day before he returns. If you are thinking you have time and you're focused instead on all the plans you have for your life, turn and look to Christ and his coming. Build your life upon his return. Think wisely about your plans and place them in the hands of the gracious and wise Son of Man. Second, let me encourage you. Build your life upon the joy of faithfulness to Christ. The world claws at you, and it tries to tell you, look at all my pretty things. Youth, you are bombarded every day with something that wants you to believe it is better than being faithful to Christ. And let me tell you from experience, that temptation never goes away. But you can trust the words of Christ when he tells you to store up treasure in heaven instead of the treasure on this earth that will fade away. So let's get real practical. What does this look like? What does it look like to be ready? What does it look like to be faithful to Christ? Well, it may look like selling your possessions and giving to the needy like we saw last week. 
or it will look like giving spiritual food to the household of God, discipling others in the faith, or maybe even for some of you, moving into church leadership as God's been pressing that upon your heart. It will look like studying the truth of God's word to avoid the leaven of false teachers like the Pharisees, which we saw at the beginning of chapter 12, or being ready to acknowledge Christ before others and share the gospel with the lost around us. That means not letting anxiety over the things of this world rule our hearts. Beloved, this looks like seeking his kingdom above all else, caring for others more than ourselves, shining the light of the gospel into their lives, using the gifts, the talents, and the spheres of influence the Lord has given to us for the sake of his kingdom and his righteousness. The list could go on and on. Build your life upon the joy of faithfulness to Christ. And finally, build your life upon the rewards of everlasting rest. This has spoken so deeply to my heart these past two weeks. Moms and dads, husbands and wives, there is a day coming of eternal rest. Build your life upon the reward on that day. Sacrifice your time and your energy now to point your spouse and your children to Christ, knowing that a day of rest is coming. For those of you who are single, there is a day of eternal rest when your Lord and Savior will call your name to recline at his table and he will serve you. Build your life upon that day and devote your time and energy into advancing the kingdom of God while on this earth. Students and children, there is a day of complete and utter rest from the toils that this life will bring, a day of joy that you cannot even begin to fathom. Know that no effort for the sake of Christ will go unnoticed and decide now not to waste your life on fleeting pleasure, but to live for the sake of his kingdom. Beloved, let us be a people who are awake and ready for his return. Let me pray this over us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its truth. God, we thank you for the promises you give to us for faithfulness. And we ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, fill us with a desire to be faithful to Jesus Christ. That you will give us an idea and a vision of what that day will look like at his return. And that that will push us on to live for the sake of your kingdom and your righteousness. God, we need your help, we confess. And we ask for you to move in power through your word. Strengthen our church for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.